This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. And I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down into the chambers of death. Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks, Noah David. Again, uh, good morning. Welcome to City Church. Uh, If you've missed the announcements, maybe you can gather from the scripture reading. This is a PG-13 sermon. I will blush at points when I hopefully read um, some of the things that I believe God has led me to teach to you this morning. Uh, We have our second-to-last sermon this morning on the book of Proverbs. Um, As we've said, this is Beauty, Marriage, and Sex, Part 5, focusing on sex inside and outside of marriage. And then next week, we'll look at the parent-child relationship. I apologize. I hope that you heard Noah David when he said, if you're willing and able, stay standing. I apologize uh, for the length of the Scripture reading this morning. Um, But the reality is the reading could have easily been uh, three times as long uh, as it was. This is why chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, all in the book of Proverbs, contain extensive teachings on sex. All of chapter 5, half of chapter 6, all of chapter 7 teach on sex, and they generally say the same thing. If you take time this, after, this afternoon to, to read all three, you're going to see redundancies and, and similarities throughout in terms of themes, vocabularies, and teaching uh, logic. Basically, 5, 6, and 7 all teach something like this. You can follow along in 
chapter 7 there in your worship folder, and I'll kind of give you your bearings as we move through. First, embrace the Father's teaching and wisdom. Apply His instruction to your life, verses 1 through 4. Second, this will protect and preserve you from sinning with the forbidden woman, uh, verse 5 in chapter 7. Third, each chapter talks about the deceptive, uh, the deceptive seduction of sexual sin, uh, uh, chap- uh, verses 10 through 21 in chapter 7. And finally, all three uh, speak to the death and the destruction that inevitably follows sexual sin in this chapter, verses 22 and following. And now while all these have a, a lot of similarities, each has its own unique perspective on sex inside and outside of marriage. Chapter 5, for instance, is the only chapter that teaches about sex with your spouse. Noah David read that to us. Chapter 6 is unique in that it spells out um, the, the different consequences that follow from sexual sin with a prostitute versus uh, the consequences that flow from sexual sin uh, with a married woman. And while it's not recommending sex with a prostitute, it, it is clearly saying that, that sex with a married woman has far larger uh, consequences, um, much more expensive. Verse 26 in chapter 6, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Finally, chapter 7, the one that Noah David read to us, um, doesn't simply say like 5 and 6 that the female sexual predator uh, will use flattery and deceptive seduction with the boys. It actually spells it out in detail and shows us the tragic end of the simpleton's sin. And so if you've been paying attention throughout this entire series, some 20 sermons on different topics in the book of Proverbs, you're going to see that this teaching on sex uh, differs rather significantly from all the other topics. Most of the Proverbs is written in what I've called a fortune cookie style, not that you take one out and, and use it in separation from the rest, but all the different Proverbs on all the different topics are, are intermingled together. There's a proverb on planning next to a proverb on work, next to a proverb um, you know, on budgeting, next to a proverb on parenting, uh, etc., etc. And usually the teaching technique of the sage is that he wants you and I, the audience, to discover all of the different Proverbs on a topic as we contemplate how they relate to one another and how they relate to the other Proverbs and the other topics uh, intermingled or interwoven with them. To have this extensive of a teaching, 27 verses in chapter 7, to have this extensive of a teaching all in a row is incredibly rare in Proverbs. It does happen three other places. But to have this extensive and similar of a teaching, three chapters in a row, is utterly unique. You won't find this style, this technique, this strategy anywhere else. It's supposed to get our attention. That's why I had Noah David read uh, all of chapter 7 and didn't have him read all 5, 6, and 7. What are we supposed to learn from this? What can we take away? Before we even look at the content itself, we learn this. This topic is of massive importance to the sage. Instead of wanting the young men to search and find and compare and reflect, the sage is is trying to, uh, if you will, punch them in the face three times in a row in order to get their attention because the temptation in this regard is so pervasive and powerful and because the stakes are so high and because the consequences are so severe when it comes to sexual sin. 
So with this in mind, remembering that uh, Proverbs is written to young men about to enter into adulthood, with with this in mind, we're going to study sex this way, what could be multiple sermons I'm going to try and cram into one, but I think you'll stay with me. The hell of extramarital sex, the wonder of married sex, and the bridegroom from heaven, where we're going to talk about communion and how every one of us is going to need grace and mercy and and forgiveness, and the power for change, and we're going to need hope at the end of both of these sections from the book of Proverbs. So first, the hell of extramarital sex. Uh, very, very simply, over and over, chapters 5, 6, and 7 all speak of sinful sex, extramarital sex, any sexual contact outside of marriage. It's a path to death. It's a path to destruction. It's your way to Sheol. You're on the path to hell. Chapter 5, verse 5, the forbidden woman's feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Chapter 6, 26, the price for adultery is a precious life. Chapter 6, 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Chapter six, uh, 7, 26 and 27, for many a victim, sexual sin has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This death and this destruction, this Sheol, is not described in Proverbs as one step. That'd be too easy. It's actually a path that says in 5 5, her steps follow the path to Sheol. In chapter 7, it says her house is the way to Sheol. And so this, this path to Sheol is described over and over in 5, 6, and 7 as inevitable, prolonged, and varied. First, it's inevitable, it has to happen. A precious life has to be given for extramarital sex. A precious life has to be given for extramarital sex. Chapter 6, 27 and 29 teaches this. Punishment will happen. You can't scoop hot coals into your lap and not get burned. You can't walk on hot coals and not have your feet scorched. You can't go into a woman that is not your wife. You can't, in fact, touch a woman sexually who is not your wife without being burned. So it's inevitable, but it's also prolonged. The death that is experienced due to sexual sin is a long, drawn-out death. Look at the end of 722 and the beginning of 723. This is describing the man who, who is following the adulteress into sexual sin. Like when a stag or a male deer is caught fast until an arrow pierces his liver, so is how a young man loses his life after sexual failure. The, the idea is that the deer is caught in a trap and he will not escape. But instead of the hunter mercifully shooting him in the heart, he shoots him in the kidney and brings about this prolonged and painful death. It's one of the themes shot throughout 5, 6, and 7. But third, this death is varied <laughs> or said differently. It plays itself out on various levels. It doesn't simply speak of death where a body ceases to exist or I would have already died, but it it talks about death, destruction, and decay on multiple levels as a result of sexual sin. There's obviously uh, physical pain and death, but in addition to that, listen to chapter 6, 32 and 33. It talks about pain and death on a community level. The one who commits adultery destroys himself, and then it goes on. He will get wounds, a, a word for physical wounds, and dishonor. And his disgrace will not be wiped away. Additionally, Proverbs says that sexual sin will lead to psychological pain and death. 5, 11 and following teach that, that at some point the sexually guilty will stop faking and stop chasing and they will groan. 
and filled with regret, they will say to themselves, how I hated discipline. My heart despised reproof. I did not listen to my teachers. I am on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Again, inward regret in the context of social shame. But finally, and most importantly, Proverbs teaches that these various layers and levels of death are the result of a spiritual death that happens when humans take God's invention of sex and choose to participate in it contrary to his purposes and his ways. Chapter 5 is very clear. God's eyes are on our paths and he is pondering our steps. Chapter 6 says that whoever touches, sexually touches a woman that is not his wife will not go unpunished. So because our rebellion destroys our relationship with the Lord, we experience an inevitable and a prolonged death on various levels until one day, unless God intervenes and saves, we will die until that day that we die forever. Now think with me. Think with me for a second. If this is what is on the other side of extramarital sex, why would anyone do it? If this is the consequence for sexual sin, why does the father have to tell the son over and over for three chapters to not do it? It's the same reason I didn't listen to my dad when he told me all about this. This is why. The adulteress, the temptress, the seducer, whether it's a particular woman or or a spirit of the age, she doesn't cry aloud, come and get your death here. Come and get your STDs here. Come get your shame here. Come for a lifetime of regret. Come here to give me your strength and your honor and your vitality. Come here to ruin your marriage. Even if you're not married yet, come here and buy. What does she say? She says, we're going to be drunk with love all night long. No one will ever know. I'm going to curl your toes with pleasure, and it's free. Why not? It's like my daughter Gigi yesterday came out with a platter of plastic food asking if anybody would like to have a free sample. And I said, sure, I'd like to have a free sample. And I took it and I ate. Obviously, I didn't eat it because it was plastic. But I ate what she gave me and I put it back. She goes, that'll be a dollar, please. (laughs) A dollar? What does free mean? I'm not going to tell you because she's much better at arguing than me, but she walked away with one of my dollars. She promises him hours of delight. And it may only last a few minutes, but it gives him a lifetime of death. Hear what I said? A lifetime of death. At the very beginning of each of these extensive teachings on sex, uh, the father says something similar to 7, 1 through 4. In order to live, keep my words, treasure my commandments, guard my teaching like you would the pupil of your eye, bind my words on your finger, write them on your heart, the core of who you are. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. Uh, Say to insight, you're my intimate friend. Why? Because shot throughout, sexual sin seduces with words and teaching of its own. The lips of the forbidden woman, chapter 5, verse 3, drip with honey. She's promising something incredibly sweet. And her speech is smoother than oil. She's promising something that feels incredibly good on your skin. 
But, verse 4, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Uh, uh, Instead of sweet honey, you take in something that is bitter and and deadly if consumed. And in the end, she's sharp as a two-edged sword. Instead of your back feeling the pleasurable massage, it feels a double-edged sword piercing it through. Turn your attention with me to 7, 24 to 27. The father gives concluding remarks in this three-chapter section. He, he says, if I've got your attention about how deadly this is and how much decay comes from it, how much disintegration comes from it, how much death comes from it, how, how it will kill you for a long time, if I've got your attention, take these summary points of application and use them when facing temptation. I'll, I'll cover them quickly. I'll start at the bottom and work my way up. First, 26 and 27, he says, look ahead. Consider the future. Remember our teaching on self-control. Self-control is standing in that fork in the road and realizing that this way is short-term gain and long-term pain, but this way, the way of the Lord that that is straight and narrow is short-term pain and long-term gain. And he says, look to the future and see the mighty throng, literally the millions that have perished on her bed. And then he says, second, uh, verse 25, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. How, How does your heart turn aside to her ways. He already told them in chapter 6, verse 25, do not desire. The older translations say, do not lust after her beauty in your heart. Sexual sin, being open to the attack of physical adultery begins by being guilty of mental adultery. It reminds me of Jesus's teaching in Matthew chapter 5. He said, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart has already committed adultery with her. Lust is the same kind of sin as adultery, and adultery often starts with lust. So first, look ahead. Second, lust not. Third, verse 25, do not stray into her paths. Don't wander around like a simple fool described in this chapter. The victim in chapter 7 is not described as willful and rebellious. He's just one who walked in the wrong place at the wrong time. He did not take chapter 5, verse 8 to heart. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Sexual sin, the spirit of our age, often lies in wait and ambushes us. It's nothing to mess around with. It's nothing to toy with. It's nothing to be flippant about. It is nothing to be stupid towards. It reminds me of Paul twice in 2 Timothy and in 1 Corinthians. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And right after Jesus says what he says in Matthew 5 about lust being connected to adultery, he says, if you have to pluck your eye out, it's that big of a deal. Fourthly, finally, and redundantly, since the text is redundant, verse 24, listen to me. Be attentive to all that I just taught you. And now the Father has said a lot of things, only a few of which I have had time to share with you this morning, but included in the words of his mouth, included in the words of his mouth is not simply one big no when it comes to sex, but a very big yes when it comes to sex as well. The wonder of married sex. The wonder of married sex. And let me just say, if you, like me, are guilty of sexual sin inside and outside of marriage, don't stop listening to me now. I will come back to you. I'll pick you up on the backside 
of this sermon and this service. But until then, the wonder of married sex. I realize that you could listen to all of this so far and think that the Bible is opposed to sex. Uh, as if the Bible sees sex as, as a necessary evil or maybe even an evil to be done with altogether. But, but the Bible doesn't say no to sex in total. It says no to one arena of sex, and it says yes with an exclamation point to another. The Bible and the Proverbs couldn't be more clear and more adamant and more redundant regarding the death of extramarital sex. And at the same time, the Bible and Proverbs couldn't be more clear, more adamant, more redundant regarding the life and the bliss and the joy and the goodness and the godliness of married sex. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. It's in your worship folder at the very top. This is part of the Father's words. This is part of his instruction. These are even commands that he says, keep these, treasure these, treat them like the apple of your eye. Now, this is very erotic. It's very descriptive. It's PG-13. Stay with me. Verse 15, drink water, a command from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. We know from the context in Proverbs, from Hebrew poetry. We know from the rest of Scripture, like Song of Songs, and we know from the ancient Near East culture and other literature of this time that the cistern and the well are their images for, for female anatomy, female sexuality. You have to enter into a cistern. You have to go down into a well in order to get the water. It's an obvious image for female sexuality. And then verses 16 through 18 is going to give images and deal with male anatomy, male sexuality. 16, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. Again, the imagery is obvious, a spring, not water you go down into to get. It's this water that's emitted at times. It's an obvious image for male sexuality. It says your spring is not a public matter. It's a private one. But but look at, at 18. This is a prayer request for a dad, from a dad for his son, a prayer request. Let, literally, let it come to pass that your fountain, another image for male sexuality, that your fountain be blessed. This is not about progeny, having children. This is about pleasure. He says, may God bless your fountain. If you think the Bible is anti-sex or anti-pleasure or that sex is dirty or embarrassing or, or if it's shameful, what do you do with these verses? Keep going. Rejoice in, another command, be glad in, get pleasure from the wife of your youth. Verse 19, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you or satisfy you at all times with delight or pleasure. Be intoxicated always with her love. Not not just the early years or the empty nest years. It says at all times. It says always. The word for intoxicated... um, at its most basic level, means to be led astray, which is why um, the Hebrew language uses it to talk about being intoxicated. But, but at the most basic level, it's, it's led astray. Uh, uh, some translators uh, say, be ravished, uh, be infatuated with, get lost in your wife's sexual love. Do you see this? In the Bible, this is God's word This is how a wise and loving father talks to his son who is about to enter adulthood. This is how he talks to him about sex, delight, pleasure, intoxication. There's nothing prudish, conservative, shameful about it. There's no embarrassment in it. It's a matter of prayer and rejoicing. This is how the Bible handles sex, married sex. Look down at chapter 30, 18 through 20 for another example of this. 
Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand. It's the only time in 31 chapters where the sage, something, the sage says something is too much for him. It's beyond his ability to communicate with words. It's too wonderful to articulate. The wonder of married sex. Sex with your wife is mysterious and wonderful. It's going to be like these three pictures in nature, but it's actually even better than these three pictures. But, but listen, he says, there are three things, yea, four. Take a look where, where one being is supported by another, one being rides upon another, one being penetrates another. There, there are two beings, and they remain individuals, but they become inseparably one. He says, the way of an eagle that glides across and into the sky, the way of a serpent that slithers across up and into the crevices of a rock, the way of a ship that rides upon and is rocked to and fro by the sea. And then this is the climax of the poem, pardon the pun. He says, it's like this, but it's better than this. The way of a man with his virgin, or could be translated, wife. Proverbs teaches this, if you understand sex, if we respect sex, if we enjoy sex, if we live freely in sex the way God intended it to be, it's an inexplicable marvel that we can't adequately describe to ourselves or other people. Fair warning to my single friends, regardless of how old you are and regardless of your past, if you hear this teaching and you think, I can't do it, I can't wait, I have to have it. I must experience it. I'm going to go out and enjoy that today, tonight, or this week. Fair warning. From my own life, I can tell you this. Your experience will not be anything like this inexplicable marvel I just explained. This is going to be deep and profound. Not really. It's going to be more like buying a Big Mac value meal upsized. It won't be like this inexplicable marvel. Look at verse 20. This is why I say that. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Sex participated in in God's way is like a cosmic marvel that poetry can't describe. Sex participated in the world's way is like eating a meal. I was hungry, so I ate something. I had an urge, and I satisfied it. I was horny or curious, so I did something. I had an urge, and I satisfied it. It's sort of simplistic, reductionistic, consumeristic, animalistic. It's like a Big Mac value meal upsized. It will most likely taste good and be somewhat satisfying while you're eating it. I'm going to tell you that. But when you're done, you're going to feel like crap. But tomorrow, even though you know it didn't satisfy you, and even though you know it made you feel like crap, you're going to want another Big Mac value meal upsized. And it will not kill you in a day. But it won't invigorate you. It will not give you health. It will not cause you to flourish. It will kill you in time, like a Big Mac value meal upsized. This is why the sage says in chapter 5, verse 20, Why should you be led astray, my son, with a forbidden woman? And why should you embrace the bosom or the breasts of an adulteress? It's a no-brainer. Soaring eagles, Big Mac. Slithering snakes, French fries. Sailing ships, an apple pie a la mode. Now, last word to my single friends, especially my male single friends who are burning with passion, re-read chapter 31 
10 through 31 and see what kind of woman the sage recommends for having this toe-curling sex with. Concentrate, if you can, on verse 30. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is meaningless. But the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. How many great partners have we overlooked or are we currently overlooking because their hair color is not quite the right shade of yellow or red or their dad isn't quite rich enough to make us not have to work or their legs are a few inches shorter than what you're looking for or their milk duck size is half a gallon instead of a gallon? Do you feel how shallow, animalistic, simplistic, reductionistic, consumeristic that is? Now, if you think I've crossed some lines there, or if you thought I was in danger there, wait and tell you what I say next, and then until you hear what I say next. <laughs> I'm going to try and be very, very, very careful here, but I want to give some thoughts on how married believers in this room can have a sex life that is more like what is described in Proverbs 5 uh, and Proverbs 30. I call this being led astray. All right? I'm going to try and be careful. I've only been married for 12 years. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I've studied the Bible. I feel like I should say a few things. This body-numbing pleasure doesn't just happen or just automatically happen for both parties. There are a lot of marriages in this room that have little or no sex life. There are a lot of marriages in this room that have dutiful sex lives that are not worthy of writing poetry about. And I, I, th- and I know, I know there are lots of reasons for this. There's, there's physical health, there's emotional health, there's psychological health. Uh, most importantly, there's spiritual health. There's not a real receiving of the gospel and the forgiveness and the freedom and, and the love that that causes to course through us. But I think one of the big reasons that our married sex lives lack spark is this, the church doesn't do sex ed well. Unfortunately, for the masses, the sum total of our sex education is this, don't do it before you get married, and do it so you can have children. And if your spouse is horny, you should be the good, Christian, dutiful spouse and take care of it for them, but don't waste too much time on it. And the only time to ever think about doing it twice in one night or two nights in a row is when you're ovulating and trying to conceive an idol. I mean, child. A few random thoughts. More accurately, I, I want to give husbands a text to meditate upon this week on how they can give their wives a more satisfying sex life. And I want to give wives a text to meditate on this week on how they can give their husbands the same. First, husbands, so your wife can have inexplicable sex. Meditate on chapter 5, 15 through 19. In addition to working on all that we've said in the previous four sermons in this mini-series, all of those being gentle, longing to be home, praising her in public, all of that will translate into her having a better sex life. But study 5, 15 through through 19. Rejoice in her. She'll have a better sex life. Be intoxicated by her. Be satisfied with her. Be ravished by her. She will have a better sex life. Think about her first and not yourself, and she'll have a better sex life. Do you see who is getting pleasure first and how she is getting it in this text? In 15, her well is flowing. And then in 16, his spring is springing. And then lastly, 
Proverbs, they say, is like hard candy. When you first put it in your mouth, you're like, why is this in my mouth? And then after time, you figure out why. I want you to meditate on verse 15, and I want you to think about what might be going on in that passage. It's a willingness to be servant-hearted. It's a willingness to explore. It's, it's a willingness to try new things. It's a willingness to build a repertoire. It's a willingness to find out what makes her sing. Second, wives, so your husbands can have more inexplicable sex. I want you to meditate on chapter 7, 10 through 21. And, and I, this is going to sound strange at first. I know that, but I, I'm, I'm asking you to study an adulterer for tips on biblical sex. But, but in reality, I'm really asking you to study a seductress. In chapter 5, the man is told, and by the way, men, we're taking the offering after the sermon this morning, and this is why you owe me. In chapter 5, the man is told, be intoxicated, be led astray with your wife's sexual love. And then it says, why be led astray by a forbidden woman? And then chapter 7 paints the picture of how to lead a man astray. And so if a man's to be led astray by his wife, at least at some point in time, she has to at some point be leading him astray. Study chapter 7. What does it look, what does it look like to, to seduce him? Verse 10, she dresses provocatively for the occasion. Verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him with confidence. Uh, right now, husbands are melting thinking about their wives doing just that. Verse 15, she says, you, three times. He is the man. He's the one. She has to have him. Flattery is a huge part of seduction for men. Lie to them if you have to. Verse 16, she has already prepared her bed and herself. She was thinking ahead about this. Verse 17, she realizes that all five senses have to be engaged and pleased for amazing biblical sex. Sight, she's dressed provocatively. She bought colorful sheets from Egypt. A touch, she has seized him and kissed him. Taste, although very blasphemous. Chapter 7 lets us know that there's food involved because she has given a peace offering, which means that she eats it in community that night. This would be a very, very lavish meal. Smell, myrrhs, aloes, and cinnamons, things that the Song of Solomon says she prepared her garden with another euphemism in the Bible. Hearing, she's talking to him the entire time from 14 through 20. But look specifically at verse 18. Listen to this invitation. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Listen to me, wives, tomorrow morning, any morning this week, whisper into your husband's ear as he leaves for work with confidence. Tonight, we're going to make love all night long. We're going to delight ourselves with love until the sun comes up. I'm going to prepare today the room, the food, my body, my attire, my plan for you. Tonight's the night. You're the man. It's going to be great. You will render him useless for the rest of the day. What an amazing gift. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, your body is not your own. Give it to your spouse, speaking both to husbands and wives. So, last point. The bridegroom from heaven. How do you transition into this from that? I have no idea. <laughs> but my guess is that for a lot of us, I don't need to transition us because we're not with me Anyway, my fear is that I've lost 
a lot of us at various points in the sermon. I'm begging you to jump back into this conversation right now. Some of you I lost when I explained the death of extramarital sex. Some of you checked out because you disagree with me. I know that. Some of you I lost because we got caught in the realization that our extramarital sex and our extramarital lust and our extramarital messing around and and our extramarital uh, acting like it's not fire, we got caught in in realizing that we are dying a slow, destructive, decaying death. And, And maybe we increasingly realize that we're not honoring God, and we rightfully deserve his punishment. This week, I was staggered by what it said about a man who commits adultery with a woman that it's going to cost a precious life. And now on the other side of the coin, some of you may have made it uh, through the first point unscathed, or maybe you bounced back for the second point, and maybe you got caught there, realizing that God's word doesn't simply say no to extramarital sex, but it loudly commands yes to married sex. Maybe you were impacted by the idea that you don't obey God on the other side of the coin. You're not selfless. You're not generous. You're not um, um, sacrificial. You're not loving and giving great sex to your spouse. I love it that the Bible teaches both. We end this sermon realizing that there are two places we need to repent, two places where we need grace, two places where we need forgiveness, two places where we need Jesus' power inside of us by his spirit to drive us into obedience in the future. Uh, Some of us uh, who are married fit into both of these categories at the same time, but some of us need to repent for having sex, and some of us need to repent for not having sex. If I lost you for these reasons or any other reason, listen now. We're about to approach the table, the meal, the encounter with God where the Bible says this meal is not for the righteous, those who think they're okay on their own. This meal is for the sinner, those who know they're not okay on on, on their own. This is your church. This is your Bible. This is your table. This is your gospel. Go back to the beginning of our worship service, Matthew 9. Jesus did not come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. He put on skin so that he could come and get those of us who don't have it together, who have been able to violate both sides of the law. He came to save and rescue and forgive people who have messed up everything, who have rebelled, who have sinned, who have soiled themselves. I don't care where I lost you. Come back now. If you found yourself disqualified because the first point on extramarital sex, if you're disqualified for having sex, come back now. Come back now and realize that Jesus faced every temptation you and I have faced, but he never failed. He never failed. He always succeeded. He always obeyed. He did not lust after the prostitute in Luke 7. He did not fall to the temptation of the flirtatious woman at the well. He loved them both with purity. And then on the cross, he gives this beautiful, precious life to you and me as the sacrifice for our sin. And because of this, he gives us his righteousness. God sees us as though we were pure, as though we were lovely, as though we didn't violate anyone, as though we didn't disobey him with sexual sin. That's what this meal is proclaiming to those who receive it by faith. It's great news if you understand what I'm saying. If you found yourselves 
disqualified during the second point on married sex, if you're disqualified because you have not had sex, come back now and realize that Jesus, while of course never in a sexual way, he lived a life of utter generosity, utter selflessness, utter willingness to risk, uh, utter obedience to God, even when it didn't make any sense to him. And then after obeying and living that way, he dies on the cross for you and he takes on himself your prudishness and, and my fear and he takes on my selfishness and he says, I'll die for that. And he gives us his life of love, his selflessness, his beauty, his generosity, his sacrificial life. Whether we're religious or irreligious, come to the table as one who believes the gospel because it is here that we find he lived for us and he died for us and he lives inside of us to give us an amazing life. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, my King Jesus, I do confess that I have sinned against you in these arenas that we have discussed today, and I have sinned against my family and my bride in the arenas we have discussed today, but I thank you that I come to you in the table of communion as one clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not one who has to pay you back or merit your love or spend eternity away from you because I deserve it, but I come in as a son as the bride of Christ, loved and cherished and enjoyed. God, in a topic this big, there are so many hearts left in so many places. I ask for your spirit to come and minister to us wherever we need ministering. Where we need healing, would you heal us? Where we need forgiveness, would you forgive us? Where we need a clear conscience, would you give us a clear conscience? Where we need the power to obey your word and enjoy life and godliness, would you give us the power to obey? We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. In your name we pray. Amen.